In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So, Team Grace, I have to tell you, yesterday morning, while I was at prayer with about 80 other parishioners in front of the abortion facility in Charlotte, I was reminded of the different levels of discipleship. I was reminded about the state of the church right now. And here at Our Lady Grace, I always tell you the truth. I'm never going to whitewash things or give spin to things. I'm going to let you know exactly what's happening. Because this is our church. We bear the responsibility. This church has been given to all of us as a gift from the Lord Jesus. So we mutually carry the responsibility of continuing the work of Christ through the church. So we look at the state of the church and we can say, how is it the church is not stronger? How is it she can't be more robust in terms of fighting the, the evil we see in our day? What's happening? And of course, the answer is going back to the discipleship of the members of the church. The church is only as strong as we, the church here on earth, make her. So what's going on? Let's look at the different levels of discipleship. Now I want to let you know I'm having this reflection not simply because not all of you are at the abortion facility praying, but because time and time again, as I look at so many opportunities that are being offered in order for you to grow in your discipleship, I myself am sometimes bewildered that more of our own are not taking advantage in order to grow in their discipleship, in order to understand what it means to follow the way of the Lord Jesus. So yes, I hope that more of you will come in order to pray in front of the abortion facility. I would hope that as Christians, as you hear your pastor invite you to come and to pray for the most vulnerable of our society as they are literally being slaughtered just some 40 miles from here, that you would actually care, that you would actually want to come and join the church in prayer, that God might bring forth some type of conversion that this might end. So yes, I hope that more of you join us there. But I also hope that more of you join us for our nocturnal adoration. That more of you give more selfless service in terms of your neighborhood and, and within our broader community. That more of you regularly go to confession and the list goes on. So it takes us to the different levels of discipleship. First, we have the broadest possible understanding of discipleship, and we use this term loosely now. And that are the, those are those people who register for the, to the parish, but they don't participate. They don't come to Mass. They're registered on our books. We call them periodically because we see no activity and say, have you left the parish? Or are you homebound and need assistance? No, 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 no. I'm good. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> okay, right? You're not coming to Mass, right? No, no, no. Keep us on the books. We're parishioners. But they don't practice anything. They do that because they're afraid when they die, they'll make sure they get a Catholic funeral or every once in a while they want a confirmation sponsor form signed and so on, right? So it's broad. No connection to the parish, really. Then we have the next level. Those are the ones who are registered with us, and they come to Sunday Mass for the most part. And they think that they're doing God a favor. They come to Mass, they warm a pew, and that's it. That's the extent of their discipleship. They don't think at all about the Lord Jesus as soon as they walk through those doors. The Lord has nothing to do with their lives. How they show mercy, how they live, how they show virtue, how they spend their money, how they vote. No way. No, no, no. They're doing it their way. They've done God a favor and they've warmed the pew. I remember some time ago, someone saying to me as I challenged them, they said, you should be lucky that I'm just here now. I thought, me lucky? It's like, it's your soul. Right? You should be lucky that you're here. Right? But we have that level. And dear friends, that's the majority of Catholic Christians today. 
That's the majority. And they are such a majority that they have molded and shaped the very life and understanding of the church herself. To the point where we start to think that's the norm. Well, as long as you come to Mass, you can believe whatever you want. You can ignore the commands of God. You can just live however you please. And people think that's what it means to be Catholic. Because that's the majority. The sad part is, the majority of such people are probably going to hell. Let me say that again. The majority of such people, they're lukewarm, and they will most likely go to hell. If you're disturbed by that, I'm disturbed by that. I don't want anyone to go to hell. But when we choose to follow the way of the Lord Jesus, there are commands. There is a set way that we commit ourselves to. And we do not, when we do not do the good that we are called to do, it's a sin. Our tradition calls those the sins of omission. That man today in the gospel was sent to hell because he didn't help one poor man. The gospels don't indicate that he was cruel or unkind to the man. He just didn't care. He was too busy. He's got other things to take care of. He had a job. He had other things going on. Just couldn't be bothered by it. God's providence put a poor man at his doorpost and the man ignored him and he was sent to hell. Can you imagine the shock of that man? When he thought he was doing so well and he woke up in eternity in hell? Will that happen to some present here today? Because you see, the lukewarm who think that all they have to do is come to Mass, there are a lot of omissions. They don't think they have to go regularly to confession. They don't think they have to pour, serve the poor, the sick, the suffering. They don't think they have to study the scriptures. They don't think they have to pray. They don't think they have to exercise the virtues of the Christian. They're turning commands into options and they're just giving themselves passes left and right. That's a regrettable state of affairs. Eternally regrettable. And then there's the next level of discipleship. This is exciting but dangerous. It's those souls that used to be lukewarm, but they're starting to kind of wake up a little bit. They're starting to think, you know, maybe I should make sure I get to Sunday Mass every Sunday. Right? They start thinking, I really should, you know, do those holy days of obligation. Right? And they start to think, maybe I should go to confession more than once a decade. Right? And suddenly the Holy Spirit starts to work in their hearts. They say, maybe I should start to pray. Maybe I really should start to read the Bible. Holy Spirit starts doing things in their soul. It's dangerous because at any point the person can turn it off. Which is why in that state of affairs it's exciting, but we have to make sure that we flood our souls in those in moments with great grace. Go to the sacraments, receive the grace, begin to do all that the Holy Spirit inspires us to do. To say yes to whatever He might ask of us. Because again, at any point, the person in such a state can backslide. Because in their mind, they keep thinking that the norm is the lukewarm. That's our constant fallback. And everything else is somehow extra. Well, I'm doing this because I have extra time, or you know, I want to be nice, or I kind of like that warm, tingly feeling I get when I serve the poor. Narcissist? So it's very easy to begin to backslide to think, well, the lukewarm is where it's supposed to be. But then there's another level of discipleship. This is where the real adventure starts. Pope St. John Paul II told us there's nothing more exciting or adventurous than following the way of the Lord Jesus. 
We never know where it's going to take us. And that next level of discipleship are those who have heard the gospel, have understood the promise of eternal life in Jesus Christ, have realized the fallenness of this world, and have said, my life for Christ. And they understand that being a Christian isn't something we do, it's something that we are. And that it's a way of life. And we come here in order to offer worship, in order to receive grace, so that we can then leave this holy place and then follow the way. Such people are just as bruised, broken, and sinful as the rest of us, but they understand the call and they seek to follow the way of the Lord Jesus. They want everything in their life to be under His Lordship. I don't want to show mercy, but I'll forgive this person, Lord, because I love you. I'll go the extra mile in selfless service, although I'm tired, I wish someone else would do it, but I do this because, Lord, I love you. It influences everything, the way they spend money, how they use their sexual powers, how they plan their family, how they vote, everything. Everything, my life for Christ. Dear friends, that's the norm. That's the norm. The real norm. Not the fake norm that we have allowed to take over the church. We look at that and that's the level of discipleship to which we are called. To hear the call of the Lord Jesus as he looks upon each one of us and calls us by name and says, come, follow me. And if we respond, and we are free not to respond, but if we respond, then we must seek, in spite of our sinfulness, to remain faithful to that way. That's what it means to be a, dis a disciple. That's what it means to say, I am a Christian. My life for Jesus Christ. That's what we are called to. Do you know the parish is supposed to be that community of disciples? That's supposed to be the predominant presence in a parish. You see how we've inversed everything. And the work of the church is weak. Which is why I'm turned into a clown. I have to come up here and beg you, my fellow believers, to come and pray as the unborn are slaughtered. Beg you to come and offer one hour of prayer a month. Beg you to confess your sins to our Lord that you might be free. The confessional, that sacrament that was won for us by the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The things that you should naturally be doing. The community of discipleship that we should mutually have. That's what we have lost. That's the norm that has been overtaken. But we can bring it back. And I'm going to encourage each of you to aspire for that level of discipleship. Because once you get there, the adventure is just starting. <laughs> but once you get there, you don't know where God's grace is going to take you. You want to live a boring life without meaning, purpose, value? You want to find yourself in misery? Stay among the lukewarm. They don't know anything. But if you want to follow the Lord Jesus and never know what is going to come, and enjoy the vitality of life, then surrender all things and follow him and do whatever he might ask of you. We never know where he's going to take us. <laughs> we just might as well buckle our seatbelt and enjoy the ride. <laughs> I never thought the Lord would send me to Indian land, South Carolina. <laughs> I never thought he'd send me to Rome or Nigeria or Montana. We could fill in the blanks with our own discipleship. We never know what the Lord is going to ask of us or where he's going to send us. Who he, who he is going to ask us to forgive. Who he will call us to serve. But if we keep saying yes and find, and we show ourselves worthy instruments, then the Holy Spirit will continue to work. 
and he will work radically and wonderfully through each one of us and through our community. So I'm going to encourage you, dear friends, to assess your own discipleship and understand what it means to be a Christian, at least have the standard right, even if you choose to be a failure among the lukewarm. At least you know what you're supposed to be. But I pray that the majority of you are inspired and say, you know, I'm tired of this. I know there must be more in Jesus Christ. And take that leap and seek that full discipleship. Because the gospel has never been tried and found wanting. But it has always wanted to be tried. And the gospel yearns within you that you might unleash its power and seek to follow the way of the Lord Jesus. Now in order for us to be faithful in this discipleship, we know we need the grace of the sacraments. In fact, we have to understand the importance of this sacrifice and what it means that the Lord is among us and what it means that we receive Holy Communion. It's so fundamental that the bishops of our country have called us to a three-year National Eucharistic Revival. That we might fan in the flame within the community of believers what it means that God dwells with his people. To help us with this revival here at Our Lady of Grace, we're walking through the parts of the Mass and then we're going through the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Let's go to the parts of the Mass. Let me ask you, Team Grace, how many major parts are there of the Mass? Bravo. What's the first part of the Mass? Introductory rites, exactly. What's the second part of the Mass? Liturgy of the Word. And that's where we are right now in our homily series. Last week we spoke about the Old Testament. We spoke about the Old Testament reading in the Psalm and the importance of the Old Testament, how we still need its wisdom and its discipline. Today I want to move to the second reading. The second reading is always taken from one of the apostolic letters of the New Testament. Let me ask you, Team Grace, if you remember, how many books are in the New Testament? 27. Let me all hear you say it again. 27 books are in the New Testament. We have four gospel books, the Acts of the Apostles, and then we jump to the end, we have the book of Revelation. Between Revelation and Acts of the Apostles, we have 21 apostolic letters. So let me ask you the first question. How many books are in the total New Testament? 27. How many apostolic letters are there? 21. There you go. See, we're getting this, right? Of the 21 letters, 14 of them were either written or inspired by St. Paul. 14 letters. He gets the gold star, all right? 14 letters to St. Paul. Now, whenever St. Paul was writing, he was writing to a specific person or community. That's why whenever we read St. Paul, we have to make sure we understand the context. Because he's addressing something specific, some problem, some person. So we have to make sure we understand the context so we don't misunderstand what he's teaching. So again, Paul is very specific. A person or a community. How many letters did Paul write or inspire? How many apostolic letters are there? How many books in the total New Testament? 27. So we have 14 letters attributed to St. Paul. Then we have seven letters. We call them the universal letters or the Catholic letters. Remember, the word Catholic just means universal. And the reason why we call them the, Catholic, the universal letters is because they're not written to a person or a specific community. They're written to a whole geographic area or to a specific group of people. For example, the Jewish Christians or to the people of Asia Minor. Very broad, very universal. Seven letters. Those seven letters were written by four apostles. Peter, John, James, and Jude. Seven Catholic letters. How many? Seven. How many people wrote the seven Catholic letters? Four. And who were they? 
Exactly. Peter, John, James, and Jude. Now, if you're looking for a place to start reading the scriptures, I want to encourage you to read this part of the New Testament. You were just assigned a portion of the New Testament. And let me tell you, Jude, it's only one page. You're welcome. (laughs) James, a little bit more, but not too much. You can do it. John, you have three letters. But get this, they're very short. In fact, you can read the three letters of John faster than the letter of James. Second John is the shortest book of the entire Bible. It's only one paragraph. Third John is right behind it. So tonight, you can read Second John, Third John, Jude, and tomorrow morning at work, say, last night I read three books of the Bible. <laughs> so we got John, three letters. And then Peter, our first pope. Did you know that we have two letters from our first pope in the New Testament? So he's the pope. He's got a lot to say. So his letters are a little bit longer, but he wrote two letters. You can do it, Peter, right? You can handle that. So how many total apostolic letters? 21. How many? How many did Paul Ryder inspire? How many universal letters? And those seven Catholic letters were written by? There you go, Team Grace. That's it. That's the New Testament. And those are the apostolic letters. It's It's from those 21 apostolic letters that Mother Church draws divine wisdom and gives us our second reading at Mass. And Mother Church looks through the apostolic letters and finds a part of the letter that applies to the readings, the other readings of a specific Mass. So we know that we go to the Old Testament reading and that points us to the Gospel and we see an interaction, we begin to see a theme or a lesson. And then we go to the second reading. And that second reading is either a theological explanation or an application to our discipleship of what the Old Testament and the Gospel reading taught us. That's why if you're ever in a hurry and you can't read all the readings of Mass, Just read the second reading. That's Mother Church giving you a type of cliff notes of what she's trying to teach from the other readings. Now, as soon as we start to speak about the second reading and its application, you might say, well, wait a minute. It seems a little backwards. Shouldn't we have the first reading, then the gospel, then the second reading? Would that make sense? And for teaching purposes, that makes complete sense. But as much as the church is a teacher, she is first an adorer. And the Mass is principally about the adoration of God. So Mother Church allows for the rearrangement of the reading so that the Gospel has the highlight. There is a crescendo, a cadence to the Mass. And the highlight of the Liturgy of the Word is when the Gospel is proclaimed and Jesus speaks to us again. So the Liturgy of the Word highlights with the Gospel. That's supposed to parallel the Eucharistic prayer during the Liturgy of the Eucharist. The Word proclaimed becomes the Word made flesh. And that happens right here in our midst. So this is why we see a disorder in terms of the teaching of the church. You have to go to the Old Testament, the Gospel, and then back to the second reading. But let's talk about the instruction of the second reading. Do you know that when the second reading is proclaimed, Paul isn't just speaking to Timothy. That's our reading today. It's one of three of St. Paul's letters called the Pastoral Letters. Paul's writing to Timothy. He's one of his protégés. He taught Timothy the way of the Lord. Timothy becomes a young bishop in Ephesus, and the elders are giving him a lot of garbage. Timothy doesn't know if he can take it. He writes Paul and says, help. Paul writes some very strong letters back to Timothy. I think it's a kind of act of kindness that we don't have Timothy's letter to Paul, right? Because apparently he was being kind of wimpy, huh? But here we see 1 Timothy. Our second reading today, when Paul is writing to Timothy, he's not just writing to Timothy. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul is writing to each of us. So when we see that second reading and Paul says to Timothy, you man of God, 
We can broaden that. You, man of God. You, woman of God. We can even individualize it. You, and then put your name. You, your name. Live up to what you have agreed to. Live up to the confession of faith. Fulfill your call as a Christian. Live these virtues. Dear friend, St. Paul is saying that to us today. The Holy Spirit speaking to the apostle, to each one of us. What I think is powerful is one word can be proclaimed and it's applied in hundreds of different ways. Whatever your state of affairs are, wherever God's providence has you, where do you need to hear that word? Where have you begun to falter or perhaps compromise? Or you're starting to feel a weakness of heart? Is it at work or among your friends? Your family or extended family? Is it in your neighborhood? Where do you need to hear Paul say to you, you man of God, you woman of God, Remain faithful to the confession that you made in the presence of many witnesses. You see, Paul speaking to us, dear friends. And we have to allow that word to enter into our hearts so that it can take root and can begin to change and, change and transform us. So that's our second reading. Now next week we're going to talk about the Alleluia verse. Yes, we're going to have a whole homily on the Alleluia verse. Because oftentimes we sing it, but we can miss the power of what it's being said. So I want to make sure next week we talk about that. But for now, we can move to the Catechism. If you have your Catechism, you can join me in number 1343. And some of you have your fancy Catechisms, your fancy new Catechisms. Watch out. So number 1343. And we're walking through that second part of the Catechism, which is on the sacraments. And we're on the part on the Eucharist. And we want Mother Church to teach us about what it means that the Lord is present among us in the Blessed Sacrament. So let's look at that number, number 1343. It reads, It was above all on the first day of the week, Sunday, the day of Jesus' resurrection, that the Christians met to break bread. So remember, break bread is another name for our worship. We call it the Mass now, but it used to be called the breaking of the bread. So the church here is saying that on Sunday, the first day of the week, the Christians would celebrate the Eucharist, would celebrate the breaking of the bread. The Christian community moved the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. And we did that because the Lord was risen on Sunday. It's because the Lord rose on Sunday, which is why we are obliged by our baptism to come to Mass. Mother Church offers Mass every day. But on the Lord's Day, we're bound to come. Our baptism cries out for us to come because it's the day of resurrection. Every Sunday is a small Easter and we come as Christians in order to celebrate the fact that the Lord is risen and we offer him worship. The Catechism continues. From that time on down to our own day, the celebration of the Eucharist has been continued so that today we encounter it everywhere in the church with the same fundamental structure. It remains the center of the church's life. Now what I think is powerful about that is that from the time of the upper room, all through generation after generation after generation for 2,000 years, the Mass has been offered. When we participate in Mass, not only are we, are we united with Jesus Christ, we are united with all of our forebears, generations and generations before us. We are united with them and they are united with us. And the Mass will continue in an unbroken chain until the Lord returns in glory. I think of all the places where the Mass has been offered, from concentration camps in places of martyrdom. I, I imagine and think of the times when people have approached with broken hearts or confused minds. How many things and how many situations in human life and human history have happened and yet the mass has remained steady. That as the world spins, 
the cross and the sacrifice of the Mass has remained steady. And when we participate in the Mass, we're a part of that. And the Church, of course, concludes the Eucharist remains the center of the Christian life. It's the heart of everything we do, dear friends. It's not the only thing we do, but it's the most important thing we do. We come to Mass, we receive the grace of God in order to have the strength and the power to go out and do all that the Lord asks of us. To show mercy, to serve others, to seek out the sick, the suffering. We can go and continue to live the way of the Lord Jesus only by the grace that he gives to us. So take grace, I'm going to encourage you, actively participate in Mass. We're going to continue our series over the next few weeks as we walk through ordinary time. And we're going to encourage you to study the Catechism of the Catholic Church. We've given out free copies again. This is the third time we've done this in six years because we really want every Christian home to have a Bible and a catechism. And we're going to encourage you to make sure you read the catechism and study the scriptures so that you might know divine instruction so you can worship God in spirit and truth and then leave this sacred place and live, live the Christian way of life and faithfully follow the way of the Lord Jesus doing all that he asks of you.